Hello and welcome back to A Cup of Atmospheric Science with me, Eric Saboya. Um, I apologise first of all for the delay between episodes, but it's been a rather busy few weeks for me here in Bristol. Whilst I haven't actually been off travelling to meetings or going to any conferences, there's just been a lot of work on at the moment. <laughs> the life of a scientist, I guess. Um, it also didn't help actually that the other night when I had intended to record this episode, the building's fire alarm went off. Um, luckily not you know, triggered by myself, but I ended up having to delay the recording of the episode until today. Anyway, a few things I thought would be fun to talk about on today's episode. Uh, First of all, there was the announcement of the new Department of Energy Security and Net Zero. Um, Then there's been the recent release of the full 2022 Scientific Assessment of Ozone Report. And also I thought it'd be nice to share a little bit about what I've been up to and talk about how we were approached by some engineering students about the best way to measure atmospheric CO2 using rockets. So let's begin by talking about this new Department of Energy Security and Net Zero. So this is one of a number of departments that got announced a few weeks ago. Um, So there isn't too much information on their website at the moment. Um, but they have listed out their priorities for the rest of this year. There are six, and of that six, only two relate to net zero, and that's priority number two, which is ensure that the UK is on track to meet its legally binding net zero commitments and support economic growth by significantly speeding up delivery of network infrastructure and domestic energy production. And then there is priority number five, which states, seize the economic benefits of net zero, including the jobs and growth created through investment in new green industries. So really, neither of these seem to actually, to me, suggest that, you know, they've got a plan to help get us towards net zero. It doesn't seem like perhaps they've outright stated that they are going to be working with the Climate Change Committee, the CCC, Um, which I hope they will be, actually, um, because they've got some absolutely brilliant people there with, you know, you've got Chris Stark. He is the man with the plan to get us to net zero. And every year they put out their report on how to get the UK to net zero by 2050. And believe me, it is a great report to read. um, But there are some tremendous challenges in there. And of these priorities in the new Department for Energy Security and Net Zero, they do not state at all about how we're going to come overcome those challenges and actually are we going to get ourselves to net zero i mean okay you could argue priority number two ensure that the uk is on track to meet its legally binding net zero commitment but that's just saying let's you know that's almost like bookkeeping in some ways isn't it? it's like oh are we on track or not you know it's not actually i don't i, I don't know there is perhaps the word ensure there so perhaps they are trying to you know motivate it but To me, there doesn't seem to say anything explicitly in there about trying to improve the path to net zero. Um, And but I could be wrong. I know, for example, it does say on um, on their website here um, that actually the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero um, is kind of almost I guess it's sort of fallen out of the Department for Business, Business, Energy, Industrial Strategy, Bays. So it's really, I guess, maybe sort of, you know, a subset of that. And, well, 
so I guess for completeness as well, the other thing is the other priorities they are listing for this year all relate to sort of energy security of energy supply for this coming winter. So I guess ensuring that we can all um, afford to put our heating on, use electricity um, and so on. But quite how, and I imagine that will be their focus um, for the next sort of few months and most of the year. Um, so I would be curious to know exactly um, how they are going to sort of seize on these economic benefits of net zero and also ensure that the UK is on track, um, which I guess is perhaps maybe where our role will come in. So I know, for example, the group I work in, um, they have done lots of close work with Bayes and DEFRA. So imagine we might have some uh, involvement in terms of, you know, making sure that our net zero commitments are on target. My understanding for some of the greenhouse gases, um, well, the key three anyway, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, um, according to what we've been reporting the last few years, we have met our 2030 targets already. So we are, I guess, strictly speaking, on, on track. But quite how those compare to what's being measured across the UK from uh, this sort of network of tall tower sites. Um, you know, there are some up in the north of England, some in the border of Wales, a few in the southeast. And measurements from all of these very tall towers uh, are used together to build a picture of the emissions of different greenhouse gases across the UK. And yeah, and that's one of the sort of aims of this work, as I've mentioned before, is sort of using these measurements to improve our emissions reporting so yeah whilst the emissions being reported suggest yes we you know we've we've met our 2030 target um we'll have to see exactly what the measurements say so imagine that might be the closest we end up getting involved but i don't think really um we'll have to see how well, we'll have to see as well how this will change. Um, the other thing I thought, which was quite funny with this new department, they've just decided to call it Desnes. Um, I don't know how they're planning to pronounce it, but you can tell, um, <laughs> that kind of relates to the last episode, this acronym was not created by a scientist because they just picked out the first letters. If it was a scientist who'd been in charge of making an acronym for this new department they would have clearly taken letters from the middle of words or <laughs> made it really long or something to get the the abbreviation they want um so yeah but i don't know i mean i guess we'll have to see how this new department goes whether there will be interest um you know from them in our work or we'll be working with them who knows but i imagine this is really i don't know I like to think it's a step in the right direction, but perhaps it's too soon to see whether this is a bureaucratic move simply um, and, you know, it's not really got any substance behind it. We'll, we'll have to see. So on the flip side of things, we've just had the release of the full 2022 scientific assessment of Ozone Report. So this is a heck of a big report and it's released every four years. And it's a full scientific update on the status of ozone depleting substances in the atmosphere. So you may remember, you know, um, we uh, early on with uh, refrigeration, they started using things like ammonia and realized that wasn't very good for us to be breathing in. So we replaced it with CFCs and we realized those were terrible for the planet, um, causing sort of the ozone hole. We then replaced those with HFCs and also realized uh, those weren't very good for the planet either. And then they got replaced by HCFCs, 
um, which we also realized perhaps are not so good for the planet either. Um, there is a pattern emerging. Um, <laughs> so anyway, these full scientific reports are re released every year and they kind of give the state of things in the field. So there are some sort of encouraging uh, news in there. It does seem like there is a continued decline in the ozone depleting substances since this last assessment. Um, and there has been some recovery in the stratospheric ozone layer that's been observed. Um, so that's really promising. Um, another thing that's quite exciting and quite interesting in there is they do talk about this unexpected CFC 11 emissions. Um, so just in case you're unaware, CFC 11 was one of those substances that got, you know, that was included in the Montreal Protocol way back in 1987. Um, and it was pretty much expected to have been phased out, um, you know, it being one of the early substances used in refrigeration. So it was very, very interesting and quite, I guess, worrying back in, when was that? I think 2018, um, that the, these unexpected CFC-11 emissions were being observed, and I think from over in East Asia. And this is a very, very interesting story um, about how this, you know, these emissions were detected and then how we pinpointed them to East Asia. And actually, as I'm talking, I don't think I am probably the best person to be talking about this because, because a few of my colleagues at the University of Bristol were involved in this, including um, my boss or one of my bosses, uh, Matt Rigby. And I think I could persuade him quite easily to come and give an interview about this and talk about his role in this discovery of the CFC 11 emissions. Um, and I think that would be much more interesting to hear it from him and how he experienced that um, rather than someone who's just read it and heard about it. Um, so yeah, that was, that's quite an exciting piece of science, I think. And then the other thing on top of this report as well, um, whilst, you know, the general gist is everything's going okay, apart from this unexpected, uh, emissions of CFC 11, um, they also include some policy considerations, um, which I think is always quite nice because this is something I have been thinking about and it is a bit of a worry on how we disseminate our information and how do we actually recommend um, the science we find and how do we translate that into a way that is clear and simple for anyone to understand about how we can ensure we're on the right track to having a nice, healthy, I guess, planet atmosphere. <laughs> um, well, you know, it sounds a bit it sounds a bit silly when you put it like that, but it's 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 good that they include some stuff in sort of very clear English about what policymakers should be considering. Um, so one of these sort of main points that has come up is that there is this HFC 23, which is a byproduct of HCFC production, HCFC 22 production, um, and potentially can be used as a feedstock. Now, these emissions of HFC 23 are about eight times larger than we've expected and seem to be continuing to grow unless... HCFC 22 production or feedstock is abated. And that's worrying. So as I said, you know, HFCs were what replaced the CFCs. And these are incredibly ozone-depleting substances. And to know this is eight times larger than expected, I mean, 
just for just for the sort of you know clarity when we're sort of doing these emissions and measurement comparisons the differences are maybe usually at least for greenhouse gases you know maybe up to twice as much maybe for a region or one and a half times as much i know um yeah so eight times it's it's a, it's an absolutely enormous difference um and something again which is quite worrying but i think one thing that's yeah, I don't know, it really sort of struck me when I've been getting into looking at more of the ozone-depleting substances and working on um, some of these measurement evaluations of the of CFCs and HFCs. I think it's absolutely remarkable that the Montreal Protocol has actually worked. This is something where we've clearly seen, you know, human-induced emissions being abated um, over time because we know the damage that's been done to the planet and if anything this is just it just really underscores I think how much marketing investment fossil fuel companies must have made because quite clearly we are capable of you know I think we're honestly I think as humans we're capable of doing anything if we really want to look at the Montreal Protocol we have been able to phase out the use of these incredibly damaging ozone-depleting substances in a relatively short amount of time. With most of them, bar those sort of two exceptions of CFC-11 and HFC-23, being phased out to very low levels, and we are seeing recovery of stratospheric ozone. Yet, the opposite could not be more true for fossil fuel emissions or methane emissions, or other CO2 emissions, you know, we are still seeing continued growth in all these greenhouse gas substances. And it can only really be because of the marketing and the power, I guess, that these fossil fuel companies have. And it's a very interesting comparison. Um, and again, never mind, you know, no one's ever questioned that, you know, the existence of CFCs is a myth or, you know, actually, no, they are, I know they are synthetic and nothing in nature emits CFCs or HFCs or HCFCs. But again, this has just been something that people have been happy to take on face value. Um, whereas with carbon dioxide, it's a, it's a whole other story. Um, so I think it's a very interesting comparison. Um, and I know I'm not the first to have made it, but yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to... <laughs> perhaps learn more of why, but I guess it's entirely rooted in the history of fossil fuel companies. So, a little bit then about what I've actually been up to. So, at the moment, I am doing a lot of data processing. So, all these sort of models that I'm planning to run require lots of data. I think in total, I'm going to be getting close to about 800,000 model outputs that I need to process. Um, which is a lot, and this is just for one substance, um, nitrous oxide. And I'm going to be looking at sort of a network of nine sites, mostly across the UK and Northwestern Europe, over 10 years. So that's it's a lot of files to process, it's a lot of data to look at. And this is one thing I think that's starting to, or I guess in the last 10 years, I guess it's suddenly had this change. Um, perhaps a bit like in the astrophysics community where we have suddenly got all this big data, these enormous data sets. Um, you know, we're now at a pace of maybe having measurements of up to, every, you know, of every minute as opposed to sort of maybe once every few months or 
once a week or something. And it's processing it all, and what do we do with it? Um, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps we're not quite doing enough with all this big data at the moment. Um, perhaps there's more we could be doing with it. But it does mean it's an absolute pain to do all this data processing, and it takes a long time. Um, and that is pretty much what I've been doing these last couple of weeks, is just trying to sort all of these data out so that I can put them in the model and then start doing some fun science and having a look at the results. Um, because I'm not going to lie, data processing is really boring. Um, but it's time consuming and it's needed in order to do the fun science. So I'm very much looking forward to when this will be done and I can start running my inversion model and having a look at nitrous oxide emissions across the UK. But I don't think that's going to be for a little while now because there is so much data. As I say, there's nearly 800,000 model outputs alone that need processing. Um, and I think as well, it's all going to take a while to run. But anyway, I thought coming to an end, I would talk a little bit about how we were approached by some engineering students who turn out to be part of a rocket competition. Um, and like, this isn't just sort of, you know, some amateur, I mean, it is, a, it is an amateur ro rocket competition, I guess, but it's, it is high tech. So, you know, they've got, they've been given um, sort of, you know, industry quality engines to be mounting on these rockets. Um, I think the rockets they were saying are about two meters high and will probably go up about 400 meters into the air, maybe higher, maybe slightly less, but they seem to be estimating about 400 meters based on the fuel they have available and um, and sort of aerodynamics of the rocket. And what they were hoping to do as part of this competition is put some some sensor or some sort of sampling method of carbon dioxide um, and temperature or pressure. Um, so as they're going up, they can get sort of a column measurement of carbon dioxide or temperature and pressure and have a look at the change in concentration, which I think is a really nice idea. So they got in touch with some of us in the group to find out how to do this. So initially, we were th they, they were thinking about trying to do um, a TEFL bag sample. So it's sort of a bit like a, a sort of, you know, foil bag, but quite high quality. And then you take an air sample and then bring that down and you take it to a lab and analyze. Um, however, that might be quite a large payload, um, not in terms of, I guess, weight, but they are quite big. And then you need a pump as well on top of that. One alternative that we also came up with is that I've, I have a load of these, well, I say a load, I've got three uh, functioning carbon dioxide low-cost sensors. So they're not, they're not the best, they're, you know, um, they're, not, they're nothing compared to like a, a Picaro instrument or an Aerodyne. These instruments, I mean, these cost like hundreds of thousands of pounds. But these little sensors are very good and I've used them for outreach activities. So, um, you know, I've had groups of school children that go out and measure carbon dioxide with these on a Raspberry Pi and then come back and we can have talk about, you know, large signals of carbon dioxide or small signals of carbon dioxide um, and similar things. So they, we did suggest maybe using one of these and they might be able to borrow them. So that will be really exciting. And it sounds like, so unfortunately the launch is somewhere in Wales and I think it's in a few weeks time. Um, so one thing we said we we're going to do is we'll obviously test these sensors a bit more properly and compare them to 
the um, better instruments we have in the lab so we can kind of get a, uh, a nice sort of comparison of whether actually these sensors are going to be good for doing these sort of rocket-based measurements um, or not because they're great for outreach, they're great for you know public engagement, getting people excited about measuring different greenhouse gases, but are they actually going to be good for some sort of competition like this where it'd be nice to see big changes or some changes in the vertical profile of CO2. So that's going to be something I think we'll be doing this week, which will be quite exciting. And hopefully, um, for their sake, the sensors will be uh, adequate enough for them to do these measurements. And it's such a shame, though, that the rocket launching isn't going to be somewhere in Bristol. I know they can't do it in Bristol. It's too big a city. But that would have been amazing. And I I would be very tempted to ask if I could go and watch, but I think I would end up getting more in the way and than anything so maybe i'll ask them if they can record a short video or something and um if they don't mind sharing it and uh at some point but no that would be absolutely brilliant so usually you know carbon dioxide has been it has been measured on hot air balloons it's been measured from satellites from boats from people on bicycles from vans from cars and now we can add rockets to the list hopefully <laughs> well yeah, well, I hope that's been fairly interesting. I'm sorry it's been kind of a rabble of different things that have been going on. Um, but to be honest, I think it's a bit more interesting to talk a little bit about the Ozone Report um, or the Department of Energy and Security than hearing me talk about data processing for 20 minutes. Absolutely not going to do that. But anyway, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. And hopefully it will be less of a delay between episodes going forward. Um, until next time. Thank you very much.